Hello, this is Claudia Wirt, Executive Director of the Christus Vincent Foundation, and welcome to the Christus Vincent Foundation podcast. Today we have on James Griffin, who is the founder and executive director of the Durandus Institute for Sacred Liturgy and Music. He's based out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he directs and manages a traveling men's choir of Gregorian chanters. His regular parish is St. John the Baptist in Bridgeport, a parish in a parish and ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter, where he serves as an instituted acolyte. He also serves as Scola director for the Latin mass community of Berks County, where he meets for a sung Latin mass every second Sunday of the month at St. Mary's Church in Reading, PA. James is also a Knight of the Order of Malta, author of the blog Modern Medievalism, and has, a formal, and has formerly served in the United States Army. Aside from his interest in liturgy, history, and music, James is a big movie buff and enjoys building computers and home theater systems. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Great introduction. So tell us a little bit about how you start your work with the Durandus Institute, how you got started, and some more about your background. Okay, we can start a little bit about um, where I come from. I like to call myself a non-professional researcher and historian. In other words, I don't hold a professorship in an academic institution, but I lend out my talents to whoever needs them. Uh, some people know me primarily for writings I've done on medieval history or on the Gothic or medievalist revival of the 19th century when people were starting to look back on ideals of our medieval forebears. Uh, more recently, in the wake of the various riots and defacing of statues earlier this year, um, during and after the COVID-19 pandemic, I decided to shift my historical focus toward writing about neglected aspects of American history. But my area of greatest focus is probably on liturgical history, which is related to study of the Middle Ages. The liturgy, or the way in which we as Christians conduct ourselves in formal worship, is a discipline that combines the three studies of theology, history, and music into a single practical application, namely the offering of the mass and the hours of the divine office or liturgy of the hours. Some people that I've worked with are, they're taken aback because I know so much about liturgical arts, despite that I've never gone formally to seminary or study for the priesthood or priestly ministry. But it makes more sense if I explain that my focus of study in school was medieval history and culture because there was never a time more liturgically focused than the Middle Ages of Christendom, where everyone from the king to the peasant was ruled not by the arms of the clock, but by the chimes of the tower bell calling everyone to prayer. These were centuries where the ceremonies of the mass and the office were crystallized into the form they would hold more or less for centuries through the Reformation, the Age of Enlightenment, the Age of Exploration, up until the drastic reforms following the Second Vatican Council of the 1960s. Following the council reforms, the shape of the liturgy and the many perceptions of what it meant to be a priest were radically altered. Latin and Gregorian chant were seen as obsolete and they were no longer taught in seminaries. The priest became less a custodian of an unchangeable mode of worship and more like a presider with more options to tailor to his preferences or those that the congregation would find most appealing. And so many priests might be well-versed in theology. They might even be very holy men who give great spiritual care to their flock, um, but they don't have the tools to carry out the restoration of the liturgy 
in their parishes. They can't sing two notes on key to save their lives. And uh, their formation and liturgy, they didn't give them much more knowledge than to ensure that, you know, the mass is valid, you know, bread and wine, body and blood. But when it comes to questions beyond that, and of course that is the most important thing, but beyond that, they're, you know, they're, they're unarmed. Um, these priests, they yes, know the motto. Yes, absolute bare bones. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's the part of the crisis that we face is, you know, where do we get from, you know, just surviving to thriving? And these priests, they know the motto of Pope Pius X, which is to restore all things in Christ. And they want to do something good for the parishioners by restoring this centrality of worship, but they don't know how. But they can turn to somebody who has studied these subjects, these arts, someone uh, like me, to help fill in the gaps. But that's incredible. So tell me how, tell me what exactly you do with the Durandus Institute and how that's uh, helping fulfill the mission. Okay, well, the Durandus Institute is named after a medieval French bishop, William Durand, or Durandus. He authored, um, he authored liturgical treatises in the high middle ages in France. And I wanted to use his name to recall what I can do for the church today. The Durandus Institute is really the next step in a course that I began 12 years ago when together with some other friends who might be listening to this podcast when it's uh, put out, I co-founded a men's scola of Gregorian chanters in my hometown, which is San Antonio, Texas. It was a freelance choir to sing the traditional chants of the church wherever we were asked. Uh, within months after our founding, we were already singing at special masses celebrated by the Archbishop of San Antonio at the time, Jose Gomez, who is now the Archbishop of Los Angeles. Back then I was uh, rather young and naive and I took the gigs wherever I could find them. And I have a funny story related to this. Um, it's awkward or hilarious depending on how you look at it. But our scola was sing asked to sing for a mass uh, that the Archbishop was celebrating at a conference for Catholic singles. This was sometime in 2008 or 2009. And we didn't find out until we were already there that we were going to split the music program for the mass with a praise and worship band. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, really. That's horrifying. So I, I kid you not, you know, in the early in the mass, we sang Kyrie eleison in Greek in a traditional chant. And then right after that, the praise and worship band would take over and they'd play you know, whatever ditty that they had for a glory to God in the highest. Um, we then, you know, later on in the mass during the presentation of gifts, we chant the proper antiphon of the day, as you might hear in a traditional Latin mass. Um, but then the band would follow with whatever they had in the repertoire set. And I, I, I don't remember what it was, but it was the whole liturgy was a jarring experience. And it helped me realize that it wasn't enough to just show up but I had, to, I had to understand the importance of being united in every aspect of the Mass, that the Mass couldn't be really treated as an assembly kit, but it had to be treated with loving attention to detail in every aspect from beginning to end. And so I used that experience to try to um, learn more about how I could present the importance of traditional liturgical music and ceremony um, as part of a holistic unit. So after several experiences, several uh, years of experience with my skull in Texas, 
um, I moved to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I found that even though I was now in a larger city with many more traditional Latin masses, more cultural institutions to support choral music, many more um, professional or amateur singers in the area, and yet there was no men's choir of Gregorian chanters anywhere like I had back in San Antonio. So I resolved to create my own. Um, and with the Scola, our first gig, so to speak, was a mass with the, with the Order of Malta. And then we moved on from there to starting to sing for masses at the Cathedral Basilica of Saints Peter and Paul in Center City, Philadelphia. And it kept growing from there until eventually I was asked to start sending my Scola to special masses in all of the neighboring dioceses. So the Diocese of Wilmington and Delaware, across the river in Camden, New Jersey, and even in the Diocese of Allentown, north of uh, Philly. This enthusiasm for the traditional liturgy as we kept on going, it reached a new height in the year 2017, when I began planning for the celebration of the 10th anniversary of Samorum Pontificum. That's the document that Pope Benedict XVI issued in 2007 to allow for freer celebration of the traditional Latin mass, divine office, and the sacramental rites. Uh, we had uh, Bishop Joseph Perry, an auxiliary bishop from Chicago. He came to Philly to celebrate uh, a pontifical Latin mass that is a Latin that is a mass offered solemnly by the bishop with the full range of ceremony. It was the first pontifical Latin mass at the Cathedral Basilica since the Second Vatican Council. And for this occasion, um, on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, which is the anniversary of when Samorian Pontificum went into effect, we had an orchestra to play Mozart's Sparrow Mass. It was attended by almost a thousand people on a random Thursday night. And um, uh, it was broadcast on EWTN. Still viewable on YouTube now for anybody who's listening, just search for um, Pontifical Latin Mass Philadelphia, uh, Samorian Pontificum, and it'll be the first thing that comes up. Um, and I hope that uh, our listeners will avail themselves of that. And it was a watershed moment for the people who attended, for the whole traditional liturgical community in Philly. And in my private opinion, I think that this mass's success uh, helped encourage the Archbishop of Philadelphia at the time, um, Archbishop Charles Chaput, to establish a personal parish uh, for those dedicated to the Latin mass by the fraternity of St. Peter uh, which is now the Church of St. Mary in Conshohocken. Um, Archbishop Chaput did that before he retired in one of his last public events before he uh, you know, retired as Archbishop of Philadelphia was to give confirmation, the Sacrament of Confirmation at St. Mary's in Philly um, the year after it was established. So for my own part, I think that that success of that mass, the pontifical mass, showed that there was a demand for a proper organization to handle all of all of the details that are related to major liturgical events like that, which I had been doing on an informal basis with me and my like-minded friends and mentors. Um, but from, the, from that point on, it seemed like there was going to be a greater need to have a formal entity dedicated to that, in addition to uh, taking on smaller projects, um, assisting priests, helping them learn traditional liturgy, music, um, and how they can implement that knowledge to their individual 
parishes. So this is kind of an aside real quick, but tell me what kind of planning goes into a major liturgical event? Yes, uh, first is finding the celebrant, somebody, a priest or a bishop who is knowledgeable or at least willing to learn the ceremonies um, of the rite. That's the first and most important thing. Second is that if he's not in the diocese, that he gets the proper permission from the diocese. Um, not a, I think most Catholics don't realize that a, a, a Catholic priest can't just show up into uh, a neighboring diocese or you know anywhere and just celebrate mass. Um, he actually has to have um, he has to have a letter of good standing um, from his bishop in order to be allowed. Um, and it, this is good because it shows that the church has a proper respect for the authority of the local bishop and also ensuring that um, every priest who celebrates on, a, on an altar in a Catholic church is validly ordained, you know, can actually, you know, confect um, the Eucharist so that we're not just worshiping ordinary bread and wine, but it's, it's a measure to make sure that... Um, you know, we don't accept imposters who just dress up as priests because that actually happens. Um, Has so, that really happened? Yes, it happens. What? Um, you tell. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I don't have a specific example off the top of my head, but, you know, there are people who are, um, there are people who suffer from delusion and they just enjoy dressing up as clergy and, um, and, impersonating them and that becomes really you know, a really big problem if you're trusting on the you know the one standing at the altar to um you know by virtue of his ordination his holy orders to you know transform the body the bread and wine on the altar into the true body blood soul and divinity of our lord jesus christ and if he's not validly ordained then you know that causes a huge problem so like I said, the most important thing is, of course, to find a uh, validly ordained priest and that he has the proper permission to offer the sacrament, you know, wherever he's asked. After that is finding the proper musicians because um, traditional liturgy requires traditional music, and by which I mean either plain chant, like Gregorian chant, or... Um, other forms of sacred music, uh, most of which we would call polyphony, um, especially, you know, especially uh, the type of uh, polyphonic works which were composed uh, during the Renaissance and the Counter-Reformation. Um, and if you have a larger budget, then you might consider things like uh, what we did for the, the Pontifical Mass for the 10th anniversary of Samoan Pontificum, where we engaged an orchestra with strings um, to perform works from the Baroque period up to the uh, up to the modern age, and those are very beautiful works. But you know, of course, uh, we ended up reserving them for you know unique or one-off occasions. So first, the priest or minister, and um, you know the musicians, and then finally is um, you know, there are considerations like. For example, the proper vestments um, and other material needs, like, um, of course, you know, the proper church uh, with capacity to host, um, you know, a good number of people, of which I'll uh, give you an example uh, later on.
that's a major operation. So tell me what, tell me what an event like this might cost to put on. Good question. Of that the, magnitude. Yes. Uh, the, um, in my experience, the biggest variation depends on how many, uh, how many singers are engaged on a professional basis. And, um, basically it's the scale of the music program. I think that's really, um, that really determines the largest part of the budget. So, um, for example, the pontifical mass that I mentioned for Samorum Pontificum, uh, to get a, a, an ensemble that can perform this Mozart Sparrow mass, um, you know, nice things don't come cheaply. Likewise, we have a more regular uh, event on that scale, which is the annual Mass of the Assumption that is uh, put on by Mater Ecclesiae Chapel across the river in uh, Berlin, New Jersey, um, because their chapel does not any hold anywhere near the number of people that would like to attend it. First, they uh, I believe that they you know, had their annual Assumption Mass at the Cathedral of Camden, and that um, they soon exceeded the capacity of the Camden Cathedral. And so, um, thankfully, across the river in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, um, the Cathedral Basilica was kind enough to allow them to host that event, of which we have done um, every year. I've attended or participated uh, or, you know, assisted in some way with that Assumption Mass every year since I arrived in Philadelphia, of which normally it's uh, a standing room only event with uh, various orchestral settings of the mass. The most spectacular in my memory of which I believe was, um, uh, I think it was Haydn's uh, Lord Nelson mass. And we even, oh. did, we even did an assumption mass um, this year, you know, during the COVID pandemic. And uh, even though every other pew was roped off still about 400 people attended and we didn't have, we didn't attempt a, um, uh, an orchestra, but there was still a choir, uh, to sing a polyphonic setting of, uh, the mass and it was beautiful. And, uh, still considering the conditions that we now find ourselves in, I think that 400 people is still a pretty good number. That's an impressive number, uh, mm -hmm. for an event during the pandemic. Right, yes. So looking back on happier times, tell the audience about some of your pre-COVID events. We heard about Samorum Pontific the Samorum Pontificum event, but I remember uh, the Serum Vespers. Yes, so the Pontifical Mass was, um, that was before I had come up with the idea of founding the Durandus Institute, but um, our first project um, under the, the aegis of around us was um, something that I wanted people to remember um, like no other. So I drew on my knowledge and my uh, background in medieval history. And I asked the Archdiocese of Philadelphia if uh, they would be interested in allowing me to put together a very special event. It was um, a choral vespers, that is the hour of evening prayer in the divine office. Um, 
Vespers according to the medieval use of serum, that is to say the liturgy of the Catholic Church in England before the Protestant Reformation, uh, before what was called the first book of common prayer by Henry VIII's son, the boy king, Edward VI. That was the beginning of uh, what we might call Protestant worship in England. But before the first book of common prayer, the localized form of the Roman rite in England was called the use of Sarum, which is the Latin word for Salisbury. Salisbury Cathedral was the, 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 the liturgical center uh, of inspiration for the English church. And it was an event that had not been seen in a Catholic church in the United States before, but um, the archdiocese was grateful to, um, you know, let that happen. And so I had to, uh, I, I created a flyer, even before I had a church to host it, I created a, a flyer, a draft flyer, um, which billed the event as Serum Vespers for Candlemas Eve um, with the music, uh, with music of Thomas Tallis and other, um, other masters of music. Um, and it was an idea that um, uh, when I presented it to the Dominicans of uh, St. Patrick's Church in Center City, Philadelphia, um, along Rittenhouse Square, um, you know, they latched onto it. And so I, you know, they allowed me to use their church. It was, uh, it's one of the, it's one of the largest um, churches in um, the historic area of Philadelphia in terms of uh, seating capacity. Um, and it has great acoustics. Um, it had, it was the perfect arrangement for what we were trying to do with this event. So I put that flyer out there um, in many places throughout the city. It didn't really have an explanation of what Sarum means. So for somebody without that historical background, they just look at it and think, you know, this doesn't mean anything to me, but it's a pretty flyer. So I like Thomas Tallis and I like, chor you know, Renaissance choral music. So I suppose I'll show up. Um, I kept promoting it. I kept promoting it. And I, you know, I, I sent out a lot of, um, you know, things on social media. And then when the time came on the 1st of uh, February this year, um, the eve of Candlemas, um, over 700 people actually showed up for something that most people wouldn't really have a clue what it's about. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even a mass. It wasn't on a holy day of obligation. It was a rainy night in the middle of February. It's really cold. And yet so many people came. Um, we did a professional video recording of it, which you can find on YouTube. If you just search Serum Vespers Philadelphia, it's going to be the first thing that comes up. And I'm we'll be posting pleased, that show notes. Yes, yes, please do. And I'm pleased to say that it was even reported by the uh, uh, a number of outlets, uh, such as the the Missive, which is the blog of the Fraternity of Saint Peter, and um, the National Catholic Register. Um, um, you know, and I have uh, several copies of the print edition, uh, which I still you know proudly display. Um, and uh, it gave me a lot of exposure for the Durandus Institute, and. I think above all, it awoke a whole crowd of people and people well beyond the Philadelphia area to seeing what is possible, you know, what draws many people, especially young people, um, into the church. It's something that, again, it wasn't a mass. And, you know, in these times, it's so popular to try it in the Catholic church to just 
have a mass for basically everything, but I was showing another form of the liturgy, um, evening prayer, and done in an ancient liturgical rite, all Latin music, you know, all, with all of the ceremony done as completely um, historically accurate as possible, but showing that we could take something that had not been seen for centuries and still it's as living as as uh, as if it had never been uh as it had, as if it had never been uh, discontinued um something that's, that's ever, fascinating that's ever ancient ever new Yeah, that's that's fascinating because it's it's much more than historical reenactment. It's it's a living, breathing, you know, form of worship. Exactly, and um, you know, so one interesting detail that I might mention about the Serum Vespers is that um, for the um, towards the end of Vespers is the singing of the Canticle of Mary Magnificat. And for the, the choral setting that we used for the Magnificat at this event, it was a setting of the Mag by, um, by Robert White. Robert White was not strictly a pre-Reformation composer because he composed this work, this Magnificat, during the brief restoration of the Serum use under um, Henry VIII's daughter, Mary, Queen Mary, uh, who was Catholic and had attempted during her reign to roll back some of the effects of her brother Edward VI during that period, first period of Protestantism. So many people under Queen Mary's reign, the priests just, you know, pulled up the, the floorboards where they had hidden their Catholic serum missiles and other books, their candlesticks and crucifixes. And so um, for the period of Queen Mary's reign, she composed many different um, choral works, of which the Magnificat of Robert White was one of those. There were actually more printings of the Sarum Missal under Queen Mary than under her father, Henry VIII, even though Henry had not abandoned the Sarum liturgy, even after he separated from the Roman Church. Um, and so there, during this period, there was a, flour, a, a reflourishing of Sarum. It was like they had dusted off the Sarum books these Catholic books of worship and just gone on as if nothing had happened. And so too, when we had the Serum Vespers in Philadelphia, I wanted to use Robert White's Magnificat to convey the idea that we were just dusting off books that had been ignored for a bit, but you know, we were just picking up where civilization had left off. That's an incredible continuity. So tell, tell the audience about any events that might be happening in 2021 hmm. hopefully in the post-covid times yes they um the serum vespers uh, providentially happened right before um right before all of uh you know this business happened and so it was just enough time for me to get the word out about the durandus institute before the lockdowns began um we had originally been planning to have a series of um, even songs under um, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, or I should say the Church of St. Agatha St. James, which is where the first Newman Center in the United States uh, was established. It serves as part of the campus ministry for Penn 
and Drexel University here in Philadelphia. We were going to have a series of even songs there in the fall, but I believe that um, we had to cancel those because they're still not meeting in person. But I believe that we should be able to have those um, in the spring. Uh, likewise, uh, I was in talks with various other churches, um, including the Cathedral Basilica, to have um, different Vespers events, and I hope that we'll be able to resume those. We did have one community that wanted to have one of our events, pandemic or not, and that was the um, that was the Carmelite Province of Saint Elias in uh, upstate New York, and so. Um, they had asked me to help them put together their first mass in their historic rite, which is the ancient Carmelite rite, which they call the rite of the Holy Sepulchre, um, a form of mass that they had not celebrated since the Second Vatican Council. Um, so the Carmelite friars asked me to help them put together this event as part of their year of vocations. And they really believed that it was important to do this no matter what, even if um, more than half of the pews had to be roped off and there had to be so, you know, so many different strictures on attendance. But I was happy to help, well, among other people, do the research into the ancient Carmelite rite, how to perform the ceremonies. And um, they had one of their Carmelite priests who does the Carmelite mass um, for one of their um, churches, which is in Troy, New York, where they regularly have both the the, the regular Latin mass or extraordinary form, which we might call the Tridentine mass, as well as um, the Carmelite rite over there. Um, so, but he had not celebrated this mass in the shrine where the Carmelites themselves um, get together, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Mount Carmel in Middletown, New York. So I helped them put together that as well as find ministers for the deacon and subdeacon, the subdeacon being myself and also putting together musicians to honor um, St. Simon Stock, who was the, um, he was the master of the Carmelite order who introduced the Brown Scapular. He was, uh, he was from England. So to honor his English heritage, we had a choral setting of the mass by a, an English composer, William Byrd. Um, so so it, was a, a, a his, it was a historic event. Many of the Carmelite friars who attended, in fact, I think basically all of them, except for the celebrating priest himself, had not seen a Latin mass of any kind, uh, at least since they were um, since they were young before the council. And uh, I believe that they came away with a great impression of it. They saw many young faces come into their shrine for the first time, and I believe that they were inspired to see the value of traditional worship in the form of the Carmelite right something that had been discarded but that this generation of catholics was willing to uh, pick up again and show that it had value in evangelizing to the next generation of catholics yeah that really expresses the potential of the latin mass in the evangelization movement so tell me how a parish or organization could book the durandist institute for an event Okay, well, pending the creation of a website, which I must admit I have not done yet, but it's in progress. Um, pending that time, um, 
for those of you listening, if you have Facebook, you can go to the Durandus Institute's Facebook page. You can just search for Durandus Institute, um, D-U-R-A-N-D-U-S Institute. Or if you're handy with typing in URLs, you can type in facebook.com slash Durandus Institute without any hyphens. Or in the meantime, you can feel free to send me an email, which is chantphiladelphia at gmail.com with any of your questions or possible project ideas. Or finally, if you would like to reach out to uh, Claudia, um, she has my contact information, or you can just ask the Christus Finchett Foundation um, through any of those points of contact for my help. You know, we work close together, and I'm honored to assist the Christus, Foundation, Christus Vincent Foundation with its mission. Well, thank you so much, James. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Yes, I loved, uh, I loved being here and uh, talking with you about uh, liturgy, you know, the greatest thing, the side of heaven. Amen. All right, this has been James Griffin, founder and executive director of the Durandus Institute for Sacred Liturgy and Music. And you have been listening to the Christus Vincent Foundation podcast. Thank you so much and have a blessed day.